0: I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to Cross-Examining History, where we explore America's fascinating past with our country's leading historians and thought leaders. Today I'm cross-examining Clay Risen, deputy op-ed editor at the New York Times about his new book, The Crowded Hour, Theodore Roosevelt, The Rough Riders, and the Dawn of the American Century, which came out June the 4th. We did the program in Dallas in front of a live audience at the Dallas Country Club. Enjoy. You're in for a treat. I did two programs yesterday with Clay, and uh, he is terrific, as you'll soon hear. He's the deputy op-ed editor at The New York Times. He's also one of the country's leading authorities on single malt, scotch, bourbon, and whiskey, and has written books about them that you can find on Amazon uh, this is his third uh, book on American history. The, uh, the other two the, was one on the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the other on America in the aftermath of the Martin Luther King assassination. But his new book, The Crowded Hour, uh, came out yesterday, so he started his national tour in Dallas. So please welcome Clay Risen. Thank you. So Clay, out of all the Potential subjects that you could have addressed in a book uh, How in the world did you choose uh, Theodore Roosevelt and the Rough Riders and the Spanish-American War?
1: Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for organizing this and to y'all for coming out. This is a real real pleasure And I couldn't have asked for a better city to launch my launch my tour uh, so, you know, I, uh, I as I told some of y'all, um, I, uh, my Boy Scout troop when I was a kid was Troop ninety two in Nashville, the Rough Riders, and we had uh, we had some cool artwork that someone had done with uh, T R, sort of cartoonish, with uh, you know a floppy hat and big glasses and teeth, and so I sort of knew knew the story. Um, and then uh, I another, so I had that in the back of my head, and then at some point I was looking for a new book idea, and I came across an obituary of a Rough Rider from the nineteen thirties, and he wasn't one of the famous Rough Riders. There were a lot of famous Rough Riders, but he wasn't one of them. And, but nevertheless, it told the story of this guy, told the story of the unit, roughly. And it struck me that I had always thought of the Rough Riders as uh, basically a, kind of a footnote in TR's life. And that's kind of how the story's told in the biographies. And it occurred to me that if this guy, who you know was not anyone famous, nevertheless got a, a good-sized obituary Forty years later, there's got to be more to that story. What was it about the unit itself that made them so famous? And the more I dug into it, started poking around, the more I found that you know this is a this is a group of men. It was about a thousand at its strongest, uh, strong at at its height. uh, Group of men together for only a short period of time who. We're not the only soldiers during the Spanish-American War. They were not the only ones who fought at the Battle of San Juan Hill, and yet they were the ones who were remembered. So what was it about them that made them so famous at the time and then ever since? It couldn't have just been T.R. Uh, although at the same time, I thought, you know, if this was such a transformative moment in T.R.'s life, because he always said so. Afterward, he said, I want to be remembered as the colonel. You know, that's the thing that that marks me, you know, I was president, I won the Nobel Peace Prize, but I'm the colonel, I'm Colonel Roosevelt. So what was that? And that's something that I think that the biographies don't get into, is how transformative that moment was for him. And then, kind of the last thing was, what about the war itself? Uh, you know, it's a short war, I think a lot of times the Spanish-American War is sort of relegated to the, itself, to a footnote, and yet I think, uh, given my, I had, I trained as a in international relations and history. And, you know, I knew that this was a very important moment in American history. It was the moment when America started to become a, a world power. And so, is there a story that ties all of this together, that ties TR's life, the experience of these men, and the experience of the country as a whole during this critical moment uh, that I can tell in a hopefully compelling way? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, within a year after he returned to the United States after uh, the short service during the short Spanish-American War, uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote a book about the Rough Riders. And so what's your, and you mentioned it in your bibliography, I'm sure you've read it, so what's your assessment of Roosevelt's depiction of the Rough Riders in, in the Spanish-American War?
1: Uh, well, so when uh, when Roosevelt's book came out, and he wrote it, very, he was a very quick writer, and I would also say... Uh, a very good writer. Uh, there are books that he wrote. Uh, some of them are stinkers, but you can't win them all. Uh, but there are some very good books. His autobiography is very good. Uh, the Rough Riders book itself is very good. It's very compelling. It's very well written. Uh, one of the things when when it came out, uh, one of the critics, like people like to poke fun at him, and uh, one of the critics said, oh, he should have called it Alone in Cuba uh, because it was... The 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 shtick was, well, all he does is talk about himself, uh, which is, you know, that's funny, but it, it's not fair. It is actually not at all accurate. Obviously, the book is told from his point of view. It has a lot of his opinion. You wouldn't expect anything else. What he does do is he talks a lot about these other men. He talks about the Rough Riders, and he talks about the regiments that were fighting alongside them. And he names names, and he gives some background. So, you know, for me, it was both... Uh, a very valuable document as uh, as a memoir as a, a as a primary source I mean here he is writing down his experience right afterward. He was a primary figure you can't as a historian ask for anything better but even better than that was his insights into these men around him so it started it gave me a lot of leads to work with it started me wondering you know who are these guys and one of them is was a a uh, uh, a railroad brakeman uh, who quit the railroad to come work for for TR and TR loved this guy. His name is Benjamin Colbert because he was half Chickasaw and half um, half Choctaw, uh, half Ch- and, and Roosevelt just found that fascinating. And he actually knew because this is who Roosevelt was. He knew a good amount about Native American history, and he knew that this guy's surname Colbert uh, was something akin to royalty and. Uh, In that world. And so that opened the door to it, uh, to me sort of exploring this guy. Well, it turns out that this guy had a history with Cuba. And in 1894, uh, before the Cuban Revolution or the Cuban Revolt uh, had even begun, there were tensions and people were unhappy in Cuba. He had quit his job the first time, gone down to Guatemala, where he heard that a bunch of Americans were getting together a boat to sail from Guatemala illegally sail from Guatemala to Cuba to join the rebels so he right away he was motivated long before the Rough Riders before the war was declared to go down and help the Cubans and to me that is also uh, an insight into kind of how America saw its role at the time
0: Mm -hmm. now you say that leading up to the time when he formed the Rough Riders in 1898 Theodore Roosevelt was quote a man with nothing to prove who believed he had everything to prove. So explain that.
1: So, what, one of the funny things about Roosevelt, I mean, he is, I think, maybe along with Johnson, uh, Lyndon Johnson, maybe there are a few others, he is our, our most complicated president. It is, aside from his achievements, it's one of the reasons, I think, why people continue to find him compelling, because there's so many facets to his life and so many ways to tell his story. Uh, he did so much. He grew up, uh, he was born into a patrician family in, in New York. The Roosevelts were a long-time, very wealthy family in the city. And uh, he had a lot of talents. He had uh, a lot of you know, innate talents. Um, but he was born, uh, he was asthmatic. He was uh, on the short side. He was uh, kind of a, you know, a weakling. And he would describe himself that way. And he grew up always with something of a chip on the shoulder. And I would say he actually sought out situations where he was that person, where he had something to prove. So, someone in his position, you know, he could his he had an inheritance from his father who died when Roosevelt was young. Uh, he had uh, you know a set a career path that was sort of laid out for him. Uh, he could have gone into finance or or what you know sort of the world that people in his world already occupied. Uh, but instead, he went into politics. That was his first thing after after college. And that was not something you did at the time. And he got in there, and it wasn't just politics to go along with politics. He really messed things up uh, in in a good way. Uh, he was a reformer. He got right. At, he was a New York State Assemblyman. Was his first job. And he actually dropped out of law school to uh, to do that. And he uh, he went in and he he fought, you know, fought with the politicians and and made a lot of people angry. But he 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 had that combination of yeah just kind of a, a little bit of a chip on his shoulder he wanted that chip there and because he wanted people to expect something of him and he always be well more you know, I'd say there were a few stumbles but uh more often than not he exceeded expectations uh, there's something very uh there's something very american about tr um in a lot of ways but i think in the same way that yeah maybe not today but certainly through a lot of american history uh People underestimated the United States. Certainly, at the turn of the last century, there was a lot of uh, expectation that we might not win the Spanish-American War. That America was not up to it. Uh, I think T.R. embodied that as well. There was a lot of times where people thought, "Yeah, he's just—he's in over his head. He's not going to do it. Uh, He's not going uh, to—you know—when he was police commissioner in New York, yeah, he—he's—he'll get eaten up by uh, the New York crime world. He ended up." Doing great job, doing great job reforming the police, uh, the police commission. So time and again, he puts himself in these situations. Uh, it's fascinating life to follow.
0: Mm-hmm. Now the role of the media in influencing government leaders, uh, and also influencing the masses, has been a big part of American history ever since George Washington's presidency. But during this time period, from 1895 to 1898, leading up to the Spanish-American War. There was lots of, quote, yellow journalism, which we might call fake news, but there was also some top-notch reporting of people who went over to Cuba to assess the situation. So overall, which do you believe had more impact on the American people and their uh, feeling like they really wanted to go into this war, the yellow journalism or the top-notch reporting? Yeah, they were both important,
1: both uh, as factors, but I think one of the stories that we get told about the Spanish American war was, you know, essentially that the United States was tricked into this war that, uh, you know, whether Roosevelt's part of that, but certainly the yellow press barons, like Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst, that they just wanted to sell newspapers. So they generated the war and they certainly wanted to sell newspapers and they certainly thought that a war was going to help them, but it's not really what pushed us or not, it's not what brought us into war. Uh, The Cuban Revolution, the Cuban Revolt, let's say the first revolution, uh, got started in 1895. And it was a brutal, brutal war. Uh, Over 100,000 Cubans were killed in the three years between the start of the war and and the point of American intervention. Uh, These are civilians, uh, mostly. These were people who were corralled into concentration camps, we would call them. They were actually called concentrados. Uh, It was the origin of the word concentration camp. Uh, they were killed in mass reprisals. You know, a rebel group of rebels would kill a couple of soldiers, and soldiers would go into a town and just wipe it out. Uh, a lot of things that we've come to accept as, as sort of the brutality of modern, modern warfare, uh, it's there in Cuba. And we knew what was going on. The Americans knew that this was happening. Uh, right from the bat, of course, you had yellow journalism, people saying, uh, we've heard this story and you've got a reporter in New York or maybe in Florida and they're hearing stories secondhand and they're making up some stories. But we also had reporters' correspondence, uh, really fantastic correspondence. If you go back today and you read their writing, it reads like it's written today. It's modern. It's great storytelling. It gets all sides. These guys really, and they had a commitment to getting the truth. Above all, they had a commitment to going there. So they would they would go to Cuba they would spend a month or so, and they'd go talk to the, they'd talk to the Spanish soldiers, and then they'd get a pass, and they'd go talk to the rebels. Maybe they'd interview some, some civilians, and then they'd file their stories. and They would actually file to Hearst. They would publish in Hearst's newspapers, but they would also publish in magazines. They would, you know, this stuff was all out there, and America was a very literate country at the time. We had uh, a growing middle class, uh, but even people like Benjamin Colbert, you know, the railroad line, railroad brakeman. Yeah, he was literate. He read the newspapers. He read the magazines, and he knew what was going on. So this story was out there, and Americans were outraged. I mean, This is uh, as bad of a story as you can imagine, and Americans cared. And they realized at a certain point, we're the only ones who can do anything about it. You know, Europe's not going to stop this. Uh, Spain cannot be talked out of it. Spain's not going to give up Cuba. But maybe we can exert some kind of influence. Maybe we can use some diplomacy. Maybe we can use... Uh, trade, we can have an embargo, and that didn't work. And eventually it got to the point where uh, the United States, you know, a widespread, and I'd say fairly deeply held conviction that we had to do something percolated up to President McKinley through Congress. Congress was also very much behind this as the justification. I mean, today we would call it a humanitarian intervention. Uh, Even at the time, people used the term humanitarian. This is a humanitarian war. This is uh... this is both the right thing to do for humanity but also uh... something that speaks to american values you know we are a country that we we threw off tyranny uh... back in you know in the 19th, 18th century now the cubans are trying to do the same and how can we tell them that we won't go and, and, and assist them?
0: right so when we talk about that being the justification for the spanish-american war this humanitarian intervention this desire to bring the American liberty experience to the downtrodden uh, in other parts of the world. Uh, As I read that, uh, I could hear Woodrow Wilson saying before our entry into World War I, we need to make the world safe for democracy. I could hear LBJ trying to explain why we went into Vietnam. I could hear George W. Bush explaining why we need to do the surge in Iraq. So what role did the Spanish-American War play in shaping future American foreign policy in the 20th and early 21st century,
1: let me let me set the context. When America got, when we were getting to the end of the 19th century, there was no doubt that the United States was a powerful country. We had uh, the population was booming, both from immigration and from uh, a high birth rate. We had just a resource base that was only then being realized, and yet was astounding the rest of the world. You know, most of the world powers were these tiny European countries. They could only dream of the resources we had. We were exporting untold finished products, you know, uh, you know, raw resources, and, and our economy was booming. But we weren't yet a world power in the way that Europe thought a world power should be. Right? We didn't assert ourselves on the world stage. Uh, a lot of countries actually, canceled, you know, to save some money, shut down their, uh, their embassies in Washington, in the early 1890s, because they thought, you know, we don't, we'll read the newspapers, we'll figure out what's going. on, We don't need an embassy in in Washington. And so, Americans were asking the same question, you know, what? So, so we're a big country. What what are we? You know, are we going to be another another European country? Do we need to have colonies? Are we going to uh, sort of take on that role, uh, or is there some other path that we need to take? And it. That was that was where a lot of the debate was, and a lot of the, a lot of the emphasis was: we need to be a country that is not just about power. We need to be a country that you know we we've always been a country that is about more than just our own existence. You know, we're a country founded on ideas. Uh, You can imagine, especially the post-Civil War generation, uh, you had people and and the generation that followed. You know, they that was fresh for them. You know, we fought a war over these values, and millions of people were were displaced and killed. And tore the country apart and then put it back together. So that's fresh on the mind. So what do we what does that mean? And the Spanish American War offered an opportunity, really almost the perfect opportunity, for us to go in and define ourselves, to use our power in a way that was not just about conquering Cuba. In fact, we very explicitly in the declaration of war had an amendment that said we we are not conquering Cuba. We uh, Promise, you know, or the the Congress required the President to commit to withdrawing from Cuba and giving Cuba independence. Um, we didn't do that with Puerto Rico and the Philippines. That's a more complicated story. But uh, but the idea was we are not going in to conquer. We are going in to liberate, and that is what our power is for: is to bring liberty and freedom and and you know spreading these ideas with our power. Right? We'd always been before that. And John, John Quincy Adams said the famous quote, uh, you know, we do not, we, we ins- I forget the first part, but basically we inspire liberty in the rest of the world, but we do not go out into the world in search of monsters to destroy. George Washington said something simple, similar. We are a model, people can look at us, but we're not going to go out into the world. And the Spanish-American War changed that. That's when we said, no, we actually will go out in the world and we will help people. That is our obligation as, as a, you know, I mean explicitly people felt this as a Christian country, uh, but also as a constitutional country, As a country founded in enlightenment values and, and the values of of the Constitution. That's something that we owe to the world and it's it's our it's our reason for being and that's what makes us special.
0: Now uh, in the beginning uh, and for most of the time, uh, Theodore Roosevelt had a partner in uh, forming and training and leading the Rough Riders a guy named Leonard Wood. Leonard Wood was the personal physician for President William McKinley and before that he'd been the personal physician for President Grover Cleveland. So what did Leonard Wood, a doctor, bring to the Rough Riders that made him such an appealing partner for Theodore Roosevelt?
1: So Leonard Wood is is he's one of my favorite characters in the book and, and in this period of American history, he's a fascinating guy. In a lot of ways, he's the guy that Roosevelt wanted to be. So Leonard Wood, was, uh, he, had, he was the descendant of four Mayflower passengers. Uh, he grew up in, outside of Boston. He went to Harvard Medical School. And after, after medical school, he, tried to, he, top of his class, uh, he tried to get a job as a surgeon. And he really, he hated being a surgeon in a hospital. He just, uh, the rules and regulations just weren't for him. Uh, so he said, "Well, I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going to go be a, uh, an army doctor." And he he applied. He was chosen, and he was assigned to go out to Texas. He was actually assigned to San Antonio, which is how he became familiar with the with the town. And right away, uh, he was drafted to uh, participate in the Geronimo campaign. So Geronimo, the Indian chief or Indian leader, had been wrecking havoc across you know sort of in Arizona, New Mexico. Uh, would dart into Mexico whenever, whenever he was, whenever the Americans were hot on his tail. So they decided well, the American forces out there said, "Well, we need a, a basically a crack group of guys who can just go really fast, track them down." They had soldiers picked who were who were pretty good trackers. We need a surgeon who can who can handle that. And Leonard Wood volunteered right away, and yeah, he had grown up sailing. He was you know permanent tan. Uh, he, was a, he was a rough guy to begin with. Uh, and he ended up you know, going the whole way, mostly walking on foot. There are these stories of him not only being the surgeon, but also be, uh, acting as a courier between the, the kind of troops out in the field and, and some of the bases. And you know the commanders-in-chief of that, uh, of that effort, and including one who then was the commanding general during the Spanish-American War, so that, you know we couldn't have done this without Leonard Wood. I mean, he was the guy who you know who took care of us as we were as we were out there, and he was as much a soldier as the rest of us. And he won a Medal of Honor for uh, for his fighting in the in the Geronimo campaign. And then he he bounced around. He was out at the Presidio. Uh, he was in Atlanta at Fort McPherson. He was also because this is how it worked at the time. He was a football coach for Georgia Tech. And uh, and not only that, but. Not only was he you know, an, an active officer, uh, I think he was a lieutenant colonel by then, uh, he was an active duty officer, coach at Georgia Tech. He also played football uh, for Georgia Tech because that's how it worked back then. And uh, there's a story of he, uh, you know, back then, of course, you didn't really play with equipment and you got pretty banged up. And this was in 1891. And uh, he got a, just a terrible gash across his face. Uh, He went and sewed himself up in front of a mirror. I mean, that's the kind of guy this is. Uh, So he was a great surgeon, too, as, you know, top of his class at Harvard. And so he ended up being recruited, being uh, assigned to be the White House doctor. And that's where he met Roosevelt, because Roosevelt, uh, under McKinley, was the assistant secretary of the Navy. And they, they met out at a dinner party one night, and they became just overnight best friends, because both of them were guys that, all they wanted to do was push themselves to the limit. So, you know, they, there are these great letters between the two of them, where Roosevelt will, you know, because they weren't, you know, you didn't have a phone, so you'd write a letter to somebody and get over to them that day, and he'd say, you know, Leonard, I've I've been cooped up for the last couple of days. You want to just go, you know, you want to go box, you want to go kick a football. You know, we gotta go. They had all these plans. They had plans at one point to go to Alaska because there was this, there were these rumors of a uh, of some sort of a uh, uh, some sort of a party out there. I, can group, I don't know, some group of folks who had uh, gotten lost. And they said, OK, well, we're, let's get we're going to go stable. Let's go do it. So <laughs> and and they were but they would talk politics. They would I mean, they were both very smart men. They would talk politics. They would talk uh, they would talk about Cuba. That was the thing that obsessed them. They were both convinced that we've got to go to war. Uh, McKinley would uh, McKinley would sit there you know, and he'd have Leonard Wood would be checking him out and giving him his, you know, his weekly checkup, whatever. And he'd say. Uh, um, you know, he would say, "Well, Leonard, you know, I hear you're you're really into going to Cuba. Have you have you declared war yet?" And Wood would always say, "Well, no, sir, but but I expect you to, any day now, right?" And so that was sort of his joke. And uh, so so war was declared, and right away this plan for uh, a volunteer cavalry regiment was put forward. It was it was largely Roosevelt's idea, and uh, they needed men. The army was really small, and so. The Secretary of War, Russell Alger and McKinley said, well, I, you know, Roosevelt, this is your idea. You want to quit your pushy job at the Navy to go fight in it. Why don't you lead it? And Roosevelt said, well, I, I, I'm honored. Uh, and You know, part of me would love to. But I, look, I have no background in this. So how about this? Why don't you make Leonard Wood the colonel and, and I'll be his lieutenant colonel? Mm-hmm. And that's and Leonard Wood said, I, I wouldn't I would love to do that. And they were off.
0: <laughs> no, sorry. Well, as your book reveals, and as most people know, uh, during the Spanish-American War, Theodore Roosevelt turned out to be an outstanding military leader, even though he had he didn't go to West Point. He had no prior military experience. And so how did he know how to organize a regiment, train them, and then lead them into battle without having any prior military experience?
1: So, there. I think what One of the things about Roosevelt that makes him a really important figure, a fascinating figure, is is how how he approached knowledge and how he approached learning about things he didn't know about. And he had this ability not only to absorb huge amounts of knowledge and to sort of get the heart of an experience, but he had an ability to figure out what the key elements of any challenge were and the key elements of whatever knowledge he needed to bring to that experience and understand that from there other things will follow so roosevelt yeah he had not only did he not have any military experience he didn't really have any leadership experience he had done a lot of stuff he'd been a rancher he'd been the new york state assemblyman he'd worked for federal government for the new york government but really he'd never been a leader of men and and yet we think of him as not only you know we we think of him as a great president because we think of him as this great leader so what was it about this experience that allowed him to adapt and, and to learn? And, and I think he approached military leadership with a few core principles. Uh, the first was uh, to do everything you ask your men to do, right? So if you're going to say, hey, guys, I want you to tent out in this dusty field for a month while we train, that's what he was going to do. I was mentioning when he was... Uh, they trained in San Antonio, and when he arrived in San Antonio, the owners of the Menger Hotel said, well, you can stay with us, because you're Teddy Roosevelt, you're, you know, famous, you're, uh, you're the lieutenant colonel, you stay with us. Uh, he said, no, I, I appreciate it, but I'm going to go, I, I will not do anything that I don't ask my men to do. and What I ask them to do, I will do. So he, they, now, he did have a nice sort of stand-up tent, the rest of them were in pup tents, so I don't want to say... But he uh, but if he asked them to march 10 miles before breakfast, he marched 10 miles before breakfast. If he asked them to go out on a 20 mile ride in 110 degree weather, he was right out there with him. And the men, you know, they were skeptical when he got there because they had heard these stories about TR, just sort of, you know, almost tall tales about him. He shows up and he's got these thick glasses and, you know, kind of high pitched voice and he's really well dressed. And, uh, you know, he's he's. They're were, they were kind of wondering, you know, is this guy kind of a dandy? We, maybe these stories aren't quite correct. And right away, they realized, no, this guy's the real deal. And he won them over, you know, a thousand men who were not used to military discipline. Very few of them had ever been in the military. You had cowboys, you had college athletes, you had you know, lawyers, doctors, uh, minors, people from all the walks of life, but not primarily the military. Now, one of the other things he did was he realized, look, it's not about me the leadership question it's about you know you got a thousand people leonard and i can't do this alone so we need to have good majors good lieutenants uh good captains good sergeants all the way down and so they picked so the the majors that they picked were all army veterans and so they were also able to instill discipline and also you know win over the men so right away an enormous esprit de corps and Roosevelt would give these talks about what we are doing. You know, what, here is exactly what I'm going to ask you to do. We're going to go to Cuba. We're going to, do, we're going to suffer. We're going to fight. A bunch of you are going to die. Others, you're going to get diseases. You'll be wounded. Um, but that may happen to me, too. And I'm right there with you. So if you can do that right, I think Roosevelt understood. If you get that right, then a lot you're going to have a lot of leeway as a new guy. And you're going to have a, a, lot, of, a lot of support so then the other thing was he, he did was learn. I mean, he had the manuals. He had these guys, these veterans around him. He would stay up all night. You'd have these, these memoirs that the Rough Riders, a bunch of them wrote. One of the themes that runs through it is you'd have, you'd have these stories. Yeah, we went on a 10-mile you know, march and then a 20-mile ride, and, oh, man, we were all beat. We all went to bed at 8 o'clock. But I, for some reason, I woke up at 11, 12 o'clock, and I look over, and there's a light in Roosevelt's tent. He's up reading. He's studying and other guys, you know, you'd get these veterans, and they would say, you know, Roosevelt, all he wanted to do, he'd, he'd read, and then he'd come ask me these questions. He'd say, well, you know, I, I read about this tactic, and, but what happens if we're in this situation? What do we do? What do you recommend? You know, what's your advice? So he's constantly learning. And, and actually, a lot of those things that, that he learned, he applied immediately uh, in the practice. So he was developing skills. And the last thing, I think, that he, that he understood was that... Um, you know, a, a war, fighting a war is, is mostly not about shooting. It's, it, it, you know, what's the saying? You know, that a war is ninety nine percent waiting around nervously and one percent pure terror. Uh, and Roosevelt understood that, and he understood that if he's going to lead these men, uh, he's got to be as good a leader off the battlefield as he is on the battlefield. And that really came, became valuable because after the Battle of San Juan Hill, they laid siege to Santiago. And they laid siege for almost a month. And this is while temperatures are rising, summer is setting in, disease is setting in, it rained terribly every day. The men were suffering, they were in these trenches. And Roosevelt understood that that's the moment when he had to be a real leader. You know, the battlefield in a way wasn't the easy part, but in a way that kind of almost came naturally. The tough part was what happens when the men, they've been two or three weeks, all they're eating is hardtack and bacon, it's tropical conditions, they're getting shot at by the Spanish. What's gonna keep them on the line? How do I keep them on the line? And and he did, and to the last man, the last Rough Rider actually died in 1975. To the last man, they all loved him.
0: Now, I realize uh, it's 8.02, and uh, this group likes to be out the door, or at least some do. Do you want me to ask my last two questions, or do people wanna wrap it up? Okay. Well. Um, Well, let's talk about the famous Battle of San Juan Heights. You say that it was two things. First, it was, quote, among the most important, celebrated, and contested engagements in U.S. history. And yet, it was also, quote, a one-day assault on the outer defenses of a provincial capital in the Caribbean. So, how could such a small battle have such major historical significance.
1: So, the, so the context, right? You've got uh, the Americans have landed, you've got about 17,000, a little under 17,000 American soldiers. They've, they've approached, there's been one battle already, the Rough Riders uh, really showed themselves. The Americans are on the outskirts of Santiago. Santiago is the second largest city in Cuba, but it's far away, it's on the other side of the island from Havana, uh, inside uh, Santiago Harbor is the largest Spanish squadron of of battleships. That's why we had to attack Santiago, because they've got all these ships in there. And the Spanish are well dug in. They're up on these hills, this range of hills, that's between the town, the city, and the American forces. So the Americans have really, they've got to take that town. And they've got to take it soon, because we did not want to lay siege. We knew what was happening. We knew that summer was coming. So we had to take the town. So... We were watching, uh, you know, the Americans were urgent, but the world was watching, too. I mean, there had been this skirmish. There had been uh, the famous Battle of Manila Bay where the American fleet, the American uh, Pacific Squadron had destroyed the Spanish Squadron. But but this was an army conflict. You know, could the American army do anything on the battlefield? You know, these were soldiers. Uh, We had regulars who had never really fought at a battle. We had tons uh, tons of volunteers, the Rough Riders being most famous, but there were others. And, you know, this is kind of this motley crew. Can these guys actually fight against Spanish soldiers, all of whom were veterans, all of whom had been fighting for years, and they're entrenched? So, you know, there were dozens of reporters there filing. Uh, Hearst was actually there himself, uh, and Hearst had a boat that had a telegraph line that went to, uh, uh, sort of circuitously, went back to uh, Key West, so the news could travel really fast, right? In a way that I think we we expect today, but was new and different and just crazy. So whatever happened that day would be known around the world right away. So the world was watching, even though, you know, at the end of the day, we didn't capture Santiago in the battle. It was not Havana. The war would continue afterward. Uh, so you could describe it as a relatively minor engagement. And yet the some, the significance of the battle was known at the time you know this was like the big game um, even if it wasn't the championship game you know you get those games and and the Americans won you know they just they uh, suffered huge casualties there are a lot of mistakes made by purely at the general level uh, the, the, the 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 field officers you know the, the colonels and and below they did a really good job uh, but the generals made some very bad uh, you know, so sort of big decisions, and there were a lot of really good decisions made, uh, uh, including by Roosevelt. And uh, but there were you know huge casualty numbers. But the Spanish, uh, the Spanish fled. Uh, the Americans charged, eventually charged the hill in this almost suicidal charge, and uh, and won the day, and and ended up laying siege. And and once we took Santiago and destroyed the fleet, uh, the Spanish realized the the game was up and, and it was over. But mm-hmm. uh, so it was this. It was this moment that everyone knew at the time was just, this is going to be the moment that America either completely fails and retreats and, and maybe finds some other way about it, or wins the day and defines itself as a world power.
0: Mm-hmm. Does anyone have a question for Clay? Yes, sir, back here, would you stand up so that everybody can hear you? <laughs> uh, the question was, d- who sank the main? Go ahead. Probably coal
1: dust. Um, yeah, so so at the time there so the main so the sinking of the main uh in February of 1898 in Havana Harbor was was a contributing factor to the war. It got people very angry. Uh there were kind of three theories at the time. One was the Spanish did it, they meant to do it and uh whether it was their leadership or some errant group the Spanish did it. Uh the other theory was it was a mine. It was a water mine uh the Spanish accidentally left it there it blew up you know no one knew it was there that blew up so uh the third was look these battleships it was actually a crew a big cruiser uh these ships are not well designed for some reason you've got a big hold up at the front where you're putting your coal and it's right next to a magazine full of ammunition uh that's a bad idea uh (laughs) but the original investigations were inconclusive. One investigation said uh, it was probably an external explosion, but we don't know what it was. But the damage was such that you actually, it wasn't clear. Years later, about six, 70 years later, uh, Hyman Rickover, who is coincidentally the father of the nuclear Navy, if anyone knows his name, Hyman Rickover, uh, one of his last big uh, things after, before retirement was to investigate and to really bear down on this question. And his conclusion was look, we saw this in other battleships. There's a dangerous level of coal dust, they would get they, they would come out of these uh these coal holds, and there wasn't a good separation between that and the ammunition. If you got too much coal dust in the ammunition hold in the magazine and there was a spark, no doubt that's what happened. So that's probably what happened, uh, but obviously, no one's going to recreate that and test it, and so um. That's gonna be the the reigning period.
0: Yes. I thought was interesting to learn that
1: Frederick Remington certainly not a typical rough rider, nevertheless joined the rough rider. Can you give us any insight of his motivation? Yeah, well he was there, he was there with them. Um he was not formally a rough rider, but he was absolutely he was a big fan of TR, and TR was a big fan of him. You know, one of the things that made Remington famous was uh, he had been out west uh i mean there was a whole, he's a fascinating guy and he's got this long backstory but he was out west and he was the first artist to really depict the west and he became famous at a young age uh because he was he was painting these what people you know took to be I mean, realistic paintings he would you know paint life out west but but a very heroic image of the west uh as well as he was the fa- he was the favorite painter of uh of officers you know they would get him he'd roll into town and they'd say, you know, our unit, you know, we will run out on some, you know, some, we'll do a cavalry charge, uh, paint us doing a cavalry charge. And he would paint that and he'd ship it back. And all the big magazines loved his stuff. Uh, he'd sell it in galleries in New York. Uh, he illustrated a bunch of Roosevelt's books. Roosevelt wrote about the West a lot. Uh, he was a naturalist. He would write about life out West. And he said, I really want Remington to illustrate it. So Remington, uh, he went to Cuba, actually, before the war, uh, first hired him to go uh, do some illustrations. And then he came back and uh, followed the Rough Riders, was right there with him, uh, both as, let's say, as a fan and as a, as a journalist. Um, and there are these, I mean, he painted the Battle of San Juan Hill. There's a famous painting of him charging, uh, not him, of Roosevelt and the Rough Riders charging up San Juan Hill. Uh, One of the few more or less accurate depictions. A lot of times you see them on horses. They didn't have Roosevelt had a horse. Everyone else was on foot. The cavalry was dismounted during the campaign. They couldn't take their horses. Uh, But but Remington got that right. Uh, He had some other. There were some other great uh, pictures. And um, you know he was just a just a fascinating guy and really a part of creating the story of the Spanish American War, but also of creating uh, the story of T.
0: R. But to follow up that, at the end of the war, the Rough Riders presented T.R. Yeah. with a gift. So talk yeah, about that. Yeah,
1: that, well, that's right. So you've probably all seen one of Remington's fame He was also a sculptor, you know, more than a painter, uh, or also in addition to being a painter. he. Uh, so one of his really famous works is the bon- Bronco Buster. You all seen that? There's It's, a, it's a Bronco and it got right. So all at the time, that was a famous. You know, he came out with that and everyone loved it. So... Uh, so when the Rough Riders were done in Cuba, they were shipped to the eastern end of Long Island uh, where the army had set up a quarantine because the level of disease that men were coming down with in, in Cuba was just catastrophic. They all had yellow fever. That were, they don't all have yellow fever. They all had malaria. Some of them had yellow fever. A bunch of them died of their diseases. So you had this quarantine. So the Rough Riders ended up there for a few weeks, and they were, uh, they were mustered out there essentially the Rough Riders, as a unit, was decommissioned in Long Island. And during the mustering out ceremony, right before it, uh, Roosevelt's sitting in his tent, he was doing some paperwork, and one of his uh, captains comes up to him and you know, opens the flap and says, sir, we, I've got, can you come out, we've got, I, I need to talk to you. And he comes out, and all the Rough Riders are out in a hollow square around the tent. And men from other regiments as well, basically anyone who had fought around, so you've got... Uh, more than a thousand men standing around, and in the middle there's a table, and on the table is uh, is something, and under it's a, under a blanket, under a, a camp blanket, and they walk up, and and he says, "Sir, you know, we just we just chipped in something for you," and they pulled it over, and it's a you know it's a big, uh, it's 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 the Bronco Buster. It's you know it's they had gone out. Someone, I'm actually not sure where they got it, because these guys are quarantined on the East Coast, but they're on the eastern end of Long Island, but they managed to get. This maybe they talked to Remington himself, and uh, and they presented it to him right there, uh, and he gave a speech, and then he shook hands with every man. And whether this is true or not, but this is what they all say is that he had something personal to say to each man. He said, "Hey, you did a great job here." I mean, it was something very personal. He wasn't making it up. That was the kind of guy he was.
0: Mm-hmm. Any other questions? All right, uh, we do. Many of you have already bought your books, but now that you've heard Clay and realize how fascinating this is, I hope you'll buy more. And we have the great people from Interabang Books, Preston Royal. Uh, We want to support them. Uh, It's owned by Nancy Perot, it's a fantastic independent bookstore. So let's say thanks to Clay Risen. Thank you. As you can tell from listening to this interview, Clay Risen is a rising star among American historians. His new book makes the sound argument that the Spanish-American War became the tipping point for American foreign policy in the 20th and early 21st centuries. You can find The Crowded Hour on Amazon and wherever good books are sold. Make sure you catch all of my Cross-Examining History podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you find podcasts. Until next time, remember the words of my great friend Bobby Bregan, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm of Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton.